Hello and welcome to Equity from the first day of Y Combinator's Demo Day. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and I'm joined by my co-host Alex Wilhelm of Crunchbase News. How's it going, Alex? It's going tremendous. I have been to a few demo days in my time. This has been by far the most comfortable, the nearest to my house, the most suffused with excellent lighting, and has the brightest screen. And I'm not joking. Those are all things I care about because it's a long day. These are very important things. But overall, it was good. I missed uh, a chunk of it. I did catch the end of it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I love coming to this because I never, uh, and this is an uncynical thing, but I always leave a bit more excited about startups and a bit more excited about what's coming down in the future. And I think that's uh, a bit of why this huge room we're in right now was full of people just minutes ago. I agree. I think it's a truly enjoyable experience. And with us today, we have a very special guest. We have Y Combinator CEO, Michael Seibel. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we start talking about Michael's background, which is very interesting, um, I think Alex and I wanted to go over a little bit more about the y history of Y Combinator. Yes. So Y Combinator started in 1512 in a small province of France. No, it didn't. Um, y Combinator is, for people who don't know, the preeminent startup accelerator in the world. It is one of the pioneers of the model, and it is still, I think, considered to be the best operationally uh, with the highest kind of impact to companies that go through it out there. Yeah, so this is the 29th demo day, according to our extensive research. Is that correct? That's about right, All yes. Right. And there are nearly 200 companies in this batch. I think, what is it like? What's the exact number? Ooh, I think the exact count might be 197, 196, wow, okay. but don't, don't quote that. And this is not the largest ever, or did it surpass the last batch? I think the last batch was slightly larger. Wow, so we've got a lot of companies that are pitching to us and a bunch of VCs in the room looking for the next Airbnb, Dropbox, you name it. Yeah, well, it was funny. Before we came in today, I was talking to our producer, Chris, who was just off camera here, and he said, you won't even get in the door before you meet someone that you know. And true to his word, I ran into Masha, an investor I know in the parking lot, on my way into the building. And I was like, dang, it is just like oddly enough going home. So good to be back. Oh, and, and oh, please, Kate. And this is your fourth demo day? My fourth or fifth, I think. I've been on the TechCrunch side of this at a couple back in, uh, where was it, down in Mountain View at the old Computer Science or History Museum? Yeah. And this is my second. How many of you seen, Michael? So this is my 13th working at YC. I did two as a founder, and then I did, I think, four as an alum. Two as a founder. Interesting. Yeah, okay. so it's been, it's been a number. We should actually tell people what Demo Day means because not everyone is from Silicon Valley. So imagine, if you will, a 100 companies get a two-minute slot after a three-month uh, program of building, professionalization, and business model work. And they stand up in front of, uh, gosh, I don't know, 1,000 people, give or take? About 1,000 investors. Well, 900 investors, 100 press, I don't know, whatever the ratio is. And you have two minutes in front of billions of dollars in capital that is looking for places to invest. And so it's your job to impress. That's a pretty perfect description. I've been to four of them. So <laughs> I've had time to hone that down. Um, but, it, but what people don't get is you don't have a lot of time. You have, it's two minutes, right? It's two minutes, but I would argue two minutes is just enough time. Because the whole goal is to not sell the investor on writing a check. It's just to sell the investor on having a conversation afterwards. Do you get in trouble if you go over two minutes? You get a lot of stern looks. We're very good at giving stern looks. <laughs> a lot of stern looks. Um, and just for people who haven't seen this, uh, pitches start off with a presentation of a problem, usually a discussion of the founder team's background, size of market, recent revenue growth, and which is all then re-summed up on a final slide. And founders often wear color-coded t-shirts to be more findable afterwards, which is both adorable and a bit dorky. So it is actually the definition of adorkable. It's pretty much on theme for tech startups. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but all jokes aside, uh, it was a good day. Let's talk about you a little bit. Um, we were doing some prep for the show, and you were part of Justin.TV, which later, of course, became 
Twitch. Were you a, a co-founder? I just I was a co-founder and I was a CEO for about five years. It's amazing. And oh, sorry, Kate, please. Well, I was going to say, instead of us sort of naming off the bullet points from your Wikipedia page, why don't you just tell us a little <laughs> bit about your career, starting, you know, with um, what was first, Justin TV? Yeah, uh, I worked at Justin TV uh, starting in 2006. Um, I then spun a company out of Justin TV called Socialcam in 2012. Um, Socialcam sold to Autodesk, and then I joined YC part-time in 2013. Uh, full-time in 2015, I believe, and then became CEO of the Accelerator in 2017, uh, maybe? 16 or 17? Yeah. It's been a great job. Time moves oddly quickly in situations like that. Um, but you went through YC twice, you said, as a... And so that would have been Social Cam and then also Justin.TV. You got it, yes. Uh, why did you leave Justin.TV back in the day? Um, we had built both uh, Twitch and Social Cam inside of Justin TV, and Emmett was an extreme. Emmett Shear was a, became the CEO of Twitch, was an extreme advocate of video games, and he was a huge fan. And that was the content that he loved, and um, he was far better at taking the company forward in that direction. And we had all been working together for years; we're good friends, so on and so forth. So we all thought. Wouldn't it be cool if we can have two companies out there trying to be successful instead of one? So that's what we did. Fair enough. And yeah. what year did you first enter YC as an entrepreneur? Uh, we participated in the winter 2007 batch. So that was January through March 2007. So when you did YC, there was, what, 30 companies per batch? 40? Uh, I think our batch might have had 12. 12. Yes, okay. something like that. And now we've got 200. Yes. Do you think that it scaled well in terms of the attention that was paid to each individual entrepreneur back then and now? Infinitely better. Okay, infinitely um, better. <laughs> yes. So you have to understand, right, YC in many ways is like a startup, and it only scales in so much as it needs to. Um, in effect, it waits till something breaks and then fixes. So if I were to give you a snapshot of what it was like in 2007, there was no software. There was no online community. We, our community is called Bookface. There were no deals, no AWS, hundreds of thousands of dollars. There was no way to formally book office hours. You just kind of email PG. Um, there were no alumna, alum who had you know raised a ton of money or knew a bunch of things. It, it was it was really early days. Um, it was super early days. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun because I mean no one else was really offering that level of advice in that kind of format and you know apply, get in, no negotiation kind of format. Demo Day, I think, had 50 investors. 50 demos or were 15? 50, okay. 5 zero. And demos were 10 minutes long, and you actually oh, demoed wow. your product. Oh, you had to show the actual... <laughs> okay, that's you too literally, long. <laughs> you literally loaded your thing up on the, on the screen. So, yeah, no, there have been so many changes. I think it's scaled really well. And I think that um, what's important is that the people who run it now are alumni. Yeah. And so, you know, it's something that's somewhat sacred to us. It's not as much of a job as kind of how we give back to the people who really helped us. It's a well-oiled machine these days. At least on the outside. <laughs> I mean, it does it does look quite nice. I mean, today was, I mean, we were joking earlier, you ended 100 and some pitches four minutes uh, off schedule. Four, we had a little work to do at four minutes. I mean, because we're, we're in a building where I worked as a TC employee at a TC Disrupt. And I don't think we even started four minutes close to being on time. So, like, I mean, I know how hard it is to do a large event at that uh, that level of consistency. We try our best. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, so YC has changed a lot over the last few years. You said you've been CEO since 2017? 
God, I, I always forget this. It was either 2016 <laughs> or 2017. A few years I don't now remember. You've been, yeah. You've been at the it's been about YC. three years. Yeah. So, I mean, just some recent changes. I mean, you had two stages last time, and this we time did, we had yeah. just one. So, what was the thinking there of going back to the one stage? So, one of the things we tell our companies a lot is talk to your users. Um, we spoke to our users. They said they didn't like one, uh, two stages, so we switched back to one. We actually survey the founders twice a batch in the middle and two months after the batch, and we fund, uh, survey the investors. And yeah. so um, people yeah. were outraged by the two stages. I wouldn't say outraged, but <laughs> some of <laughs> needless to say, mildly annoyed. Yes. Mildly annoyed is probably better. Yes. But yeah, I think that like we always have to experiment and this space was huge. So it gave us some opportunity to experiment and we learned two stages don't work. Yeah. One thing you also did was move Demo Day up from the South Bay up here. And yes. I got to say, I took an Uber here and it was tremendous. I didn't have to take Caltrain and then walk. Uh, what was the impetus behind that, uh, that transition? Uh, the a combination of two things. One, the vast majority of our actual companies live in San Francisco. And two, a massively growing number of investors live in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so I was probably getting complaints. Oh, and three, sorry, our alumni all live in San Francisco. Everybody's here. So basically, for a number of years, people were just complaining to me constantly about why they have to drive down to Mountain View. And so... You know, after a while, that got old. I mean, it's kind of a testament to how the center of gravity in Silicon Valley kind of writ large has changed. I mean, we used to joke about everyone going down to Sand Hill Road in the 90s. And now I feel like that would almost be an archaic uh, practice unless you were a later stage company looking for almost like a, an earlier vintage of VC firm to pitch to. Yeah. I mean, when I did YC in 2007, I was, I think, 23. And we were in a batch of companies. We all lived in San Francisco. And we were all kind of, I think, part of this group of people who grew up in the suburbs and always wanted to live in the city. Yeah. And so the idea of living in Mountain View or Palo Alto just seemed horrible in every way. And I think that basically, you know, that was more than 10 years ago. And everyone young after us felt the same way. Everyone's moved in mass down yeah. to the city. That's um, the are trend. there many at all companies that are actually based in Silicon Valley, truly, in this batch? Um, so I have this stat. We don't really know for this batch yet. I have the stats for last batch. I believe over 75% of the companies are going to be located in San Francisco. And remember, we have a ton of international companies. So actually, New York beats both Mountain View and Palo Alto combined. Really? That's, yes. that's fascinating. So, and we don't have that many in New York. So really, like uh, locating down in the bays is not what people do. I'm actually, uh, I'm not surprised that there's a lot more from SF than from the South Bay. I am surprised that it's, it sounds like a handful. Are yeah, I forgot the there. exact numbers, but it was it was under 10% of the batch. 75%. I'm, I'm surprised by that number. Really? So you thought it would have been a little bit lower? I, th I would have thought it would have been a little bit lower. Um, so, you know, we had, so we asked some of our Twitter followers for questions for you, and one of them was exactly relating to are the companies based mostly in San Francisco or do they come here for the program and they go back to New York, to L.A., to, you know, it really depends city. on what the companies want to do. I think there's a huge set of companies that are building B2B software that they want to sell to other tech companies. Yep. And like, well, you should probably be in San Francisco. And there's another huge set of companies that want to be building products for their home country. And so they'll go back to Mexico or India or Nigeria or somewhere in Europe. We don't force them to do anything. So all of this movement is just organic where they think that they get the most value. I think it's strange, though. A lot of founders kind of have the misconception that you should locate where your customers are. And I think the reality is that for most companies, your customers are going to be spread all over, especially at scale. So most of the time, people are choosing where they want to hire. And as much as people complain about the hiring environment here, 
it still attracts some of the smartest people in the entire world every year. So um, can I can I push on that? Because I've heard this described a couple of different ways about why people locate to the Bay Area and SF in particular. It's not that there aren't smart people everywhere. It's that there are certain smart people with very select experiences that are concentrated here. So if you want to hire a, how is this told to me? I think it was like, if you want to hire a director of marketing who's gone from series A to series C, there are 17 in this area. There's one, you know, east of the Mississippi. Is that is that still That's the argument that holds up? extremely accurate. And, and I think the other thing that people sometimes mistake is that they think that all the companies here are effectively stealing talent away from the startup community as opposed to thinking of all the companies here as a magnet for talent. And in fact, right, you think about it, all these big companies here are drawing talent in, but how many people do you know work 10 years at Google or 10 years at Facebook, right? Mm, pretty rare. And so in reality, these big companies are bringing people here, some of them are staying, some of them are leaving, and then everyone gets to kind of benefit from the talent they've drawn here. So even at the lower level, certainly experienced people, it's a lot easier to find them here, but even at the lower levels, I think it's so easy to be cynical about this place, but to a lot of people in the world, this is like tech. Like this place is where tech's happening. It's and an like they want to exactly, they want to be here. It's like I'm a struggling actor in, in Iowa and I want to find a way to get to Hollywood. Like this is kind of the, the promised land for a lot of people around the world. Yeah, as much as there is this narrative around people sort of leaving in droves. I mean, 75% of the companies are staying here. That's definitely representative of something. Yes. I think uh, sometimes people's Twitter bark is more than the kind of reality bite. <laughs> I feel personally attacked by that. <laughs> um, Should we? Business aside, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, pricing first. And then I want to yeah. talk about uh, some breakdowns of the groups. And I want to talk a little bit about India and Latin America, too. So let's scoot forward here. Great. Um, I have been covering tech for a long time, so I, I know a, a cadre of investors in and around the space. And uh, there has been a steady whine in the background about what uh, Y Combinator companies cost in and around Demo Day. Um, I will say politely, I think the, the complaints have gone up in the last couple of years, and yet everyone still seems to write checks. So I'm trying to square the complaints with the actions, and I'm trying to maybe understand how you think about um, the pricing of YC companies, because since your day, the value of a YC company of presuming similar quality has gone up since the 2007-2009 batches. Sure. You know, I think that until working at YC, I didn't truly understand the dynamics behind pricing. If you think about it, it's a competitive market where investors are bidding against each other. So if you see pricing go up, you have to ask yourself the question of where is the money supply coming from? And I think the big trend over the last six years has been institutional investors moving from just kind of series A funds and growth funds down to the seed level. You know, when you looked at Demo Day, when I was going through the first time, it was full of angels, people investing off their own personal balance sheet. <laughs> and if you look at the room today, it's full of funds. And so I think that the reality is, is that as the pool of capital increases in the seed world, the seed investors are competing against each other. And the, one of the easier ways for investors to compete is to bid up price. And so, you know, from our perspective, what's interesting is like, we're not necessarily a fan of that because uh, there's another thing that tends to happen as prices go up. Companies raise more money. And what we've seen a lot is when founders raise too much money, they act like post-product market fit companies when they're pre-product market fit. They start thinking, I need the bigger office. I need to hire 10 employees. And we need to they do all these other things. They spend the money that they raise. Exactly. Often faster than they would have spent less money. And so we actually don't think this is a, uh, necessarily a positive phenomenon. On the other hand, 
you know, we like the idea that our founders can get less dilution. That's certainly a big positive. What's funny is like, we're not in control of the asset class. You know, we have like 200 companies a batch. The asset class is billions of dollars that a whole set of LPs around the world really control. Yeah. One more point on this, mm -hmm. Kate, then I'll pass back to you. Um, if a company of, uh, let's say, a seed stage maturity raises at a Series A price, when they go to raise future capital, they're going to have a much higher uh, watermark to kind of meet. And so I'm curious if these companies are getting, in some cases, uh, you always hear some scuttlebutt about some crazy deal at a 40 million pre or whatever it is from a YC company. Um, can they get so far ahead of themselves in terms of valuation, they, they almost pinch themselves a little bit later on uh, you know, there are a lot of things said like this, and I think that oftentimes it kind of betrays the horrible truth of startups, which is that most startups die. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, you know, we hear the other version of this, which is like, oh, if a later stage investor is in your early stage round, it's like signaling, and so you won't be able to raise it. It's kind of like all these things that are surrounding the idea that like, oh, of course you're going to raise the next round, instead of like the horrible reality that like, you most don't. Most don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like not even like... I mean, YC companies, which I think are a really good sample, it's about 30% go on to raise Series A's. So, like, the thing that's going to kill you is probably not how much you fundraised or, you know, who you raised from or yada, yada, yada. The thing that's going to kill you is you didn't build something your customers wanted. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy, though, because there are so many companies that come out of YC, they really can determine sort of the state of seed investing. And I think when you have companies raising $7.5 million seed rounds at $30 million, pre-money valuations. Rare. That's, that, I mean, and, and like you're saying, like, we that, hear about these the crazy deals. Yeah. Yes, but I think that's the fun thing, right? Like, part of this game is gossip and like fun anecdotes get, get kind of amplified. You know, it's funny because before this, I was kind of a product person and, you know, once we started using analytics and started seeing actually what's happening on our product, we kind of stopped listening to the customer service anecdotes and started actually looking at what's happening. And like, from our side, we see all the valuations and we see what everyone raises and from who and so yeah. on and so forth. So while it's definitely gone up a lot, like the anecdotal like seven at forty, that's a so what is that's the a very rare, very rare circumstance. Typical deal you see? Um we see most companies that are be raising at somewhere between eight and fifteen million dollar post money valuations. And so that's kind of the, the typical range where most of the batch is gonna do. What I will tell you is that any given batch, some set of investors will decide that a certain set of companies are the great deals. And like that spreads like water, like, like it wildfire. Really does. And if for those companies, like the valuations can be higher. It's a small set of companies, but it seems like it happens every single batch. And yeah. sometimes it corresponds with quality. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> that was, that sometimes was... we don't know, right? I mean, how are we supposed to know? Or supposed to know yet. I mean, exactly, of course. Yeah, it's early. Yeah, it took yeah, Dropbox I mean, a long time to go public. When exactly. that happens, um, you know, there's a three or four companies that, like Sequoia, Lightspeed, whatever, is all vying for. I mean, how do you... You won't say no like, to I, it I if guess, Sequoia comes calling. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, probably no, I not. Mean, it's a funny problem to have, right? <laughs> well, I mean, th that's the joke side of this, because for the startup, you get more capital, lower dilution, and, sure. and more buzz around you. They'll help drive even maybe customer acquisition in the early stage, sure. because you are the hot well, thing. Right, sure. and then you're oversubscribed before you even demo. So I guess that, that's kind of where I was leading with that. I just sort of trailed off. But yeah. like, do you have to pitch if you've already um, closed so your seat? You don't have to do anything, because okay. we're not 
their boss. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so we can't. I mean, there Fair are enough. guns in the back, but we can't point them at the founders as against the laws. Um, <laughs> Do so you encourage everyone to pitch? Or yeah, I'm. I think there's a lot of different value out of Demo Day, and a lot of people think of it as just the fundraising part. Um, but there are kind of three other major components. One, prep for Demo Day in many ways is like a boot camp. Right. Like everyone is hanging out at the YC office for hours and hours every day. You're kind of practicing your story and like it kind of brings the batch together. It brings your team together. So that process is very, very valuable. Um, I think the second thing is that if you are thinking about who are going to be the partners who might sit on your board and be a Series A investor, it's nice to meet them and get to know them a year before you want to do your Series A when you're not in this high pressure fundraising situation. And then last customers, I mean, between Alumni Demo Day and Demo Day, the opportunity to get customers is huge. And the press is here. I mean, it's just tons of opportunity to get customers. The network that you build. Yeah. I mean, that just seems completely Very priceless. Valuable. Yeah. Um, a nerdy question before we move on to uh, some uh, demographic data. Sure. Um, there's been some discussion among oh, mostly Fred Wilson, okay. uh, who has been saying that startups shouldn't raise um, safes or convertible notes. They should raise priced rounds and that this uh, leads to tricky situations. I don't know if you saw the article about Toptal, uh, which will apparently never raise again, and people are struggling to figure out how to handle that situation. An outlier, I know. The poor investors, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't get a chance to invest. Oh, no, I don't feel sorry <laughs> for the investors ever. That, that, that is a cardinal rule of this show is no pity for rich people, ever. I mean, really, seriously. No, but I, I'm curious about startups because I, I don't think Fred Wilson is only making a point for VCs. I think yeah. it's easier for founders um, at times to not raise these notes that are going to eventually come due, and, and we don't know what they look like. So do you have so a perspective on this? Yeah, so um, I do, and... and it's actually interesting. I think I would agree with Fred about um, the original safe, which is a pre-money safe, for a very specific reason. It was extremely hard to calculate how much of your company you've sold when you're raising pre-money safes because every safe diluted the safe that came before. And so the actual calculation was basically impossible. You could kind of model scenarios but like it actually even depended on how much money you raised in your Series A. So it was really hard to tell. Whereas when you're raising equity, it's ridiculously easy to tell how much of your company you've sold. I think that we've solved that problem with the post money safe. Post money safe, if you sell, if you raise a million dollars at a 10 cap, you sold 10% of your company. Mm -hmm. Easy division. And so I think that was a necessary change. I think that investors are probably complaining a little bit too much about price when considering that moving from pre to post means everyone gets cheaper. Yeah. Um, and the investors now know their ownership because investors had the problem too of not knowing their ownership, right? Which is extremely important for their business to have certain levels of ownership. So I think that um, that part of his point, I completely agree with, but I think that we've changed it. The part that I don't agree with is that unfortunately, if you try to raise a priced round, a lot of the leverage moves to the investor and to the lawyer. And like we're trying to put the leverage on the founder side. So it moves to the investor because typically you have to have a lead. And so now you're recruiting a lead and they basically set the price and they help build the round. And so the investor is kind of the, the leader in that. And then the lawyer is going to charge $25,000, $50,000 to do it. And that comes out of the founder side. Whereas when a company is raising on post money safes, they don't need a lead. Anyone they want to do a deal with is a deal and it stands alone. And they can do it with software. It costs no money. So... You know, Fred is in kind of an interesting situation. He probably wants to own most of the round, so on and so forth. So, you know, it's right, a different Right, but you have a founder-first perspective versus, I, I imagine, most VCs have a sort of 
a VC first perspective, understandably well, I mean, so. Makes sense. I mean, yes, it does. <laughs> it does YC also is not a nonprofit, I don't think. Sure. No, 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 no. Um, but but still, I think that in the end of the day, our whole core was how do you make a simple process that doesn't require you to have like an MBA and accounting degree and is more focused on building your company and less focused on like weird gotchas and so on and yeah. so forth. So. And for people who are listening and don't know what that means, SAFE stands for Simple Agreement for Future Equity. Yes. It's, uh, it's an acronym. Yes. It's an easy way to raise money um, as a startup without needing lawyers. Yeah. Because lawyers are not cheap for anyone, actually. They're expensive. Yeah. So let's see. We've got a couple more things. Yeah. I want to talk about um, really Latin America and India. Sure. I feel like um, as someone who covers the venture scene and I have for longer than I want to admit, there was this moment, you know, over the last three to four years in which China was the the biggest looming thing on the horizon. Uh, You know, people in China tech companies work harder. They're going, they're scaling faster. You know, they're raising more money. What are you going to do? Silicon Valley is over. And and now, you know, you you count to 12 and the climate has changed both politically and economically in China. Sure. And, um, you know, I was reading some YC material that was sent today. And one of the highlights at the very top of the who's pitching today was India and Latin America. So I'm curious why you're calling out those two uh, regions right now. I think what's so interesting and I learned this. Uh, this is a roundabout way of answering your question. I learned this when crypto blew up. Like we funded Coinbase, I think, in 2014 and crypto was not hot, I'll just say. And I think the thing that I've realized is that by the time these trends are kind of understood more widely, they're usually at halfway or, or, or further. And so we started accepting companies from India years ago. We started accepting companies from Latin America years ago. Uh, Rappi went through the batch years ago. Now that they've raised at a billion dollar valuation, now that uh, Misho's doing well, now that um, ClearTax is doing well, suddenly it's the trend. And I think that for us, what's so tricky is because we have to invest in companies so early, if we're following the trend, we're five years behind. So what we do instead is we just try to fund smart founders and not be too smart. And what's cool about our model is that we don't have to be right a lot, right? We fund 200 companies, we don't have to be right a lot. And so when you're in the interview room, you don't feel this intense pressure to kind of, I don't like, like this intense pressure that you might have to like back up this decision with like a group of your partners or any of those things. You just kind of feel like, are these people driven and smart and really believe in what they're doing and capable? All right, let's help them and we'll see what happens. And like that mentality, I think is very different because we get to, I mean, invest in 400 companies a year. A typical series A investor is going to invest in two companies a year. So they need to be a little bit more rigorous about how they do it. It's only 200 times more. I mean, other than that, it's not, not a big <laughs> yeah, deal. Yeah, it's about the same otherwise. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> so then do founders lead you to new trends as opposed to you declaring a thesis and then going out and then executing against that thesis? You know, it's really interesting. Two things happen. One, um, when you fund the first founder from a region, if they have a great experience, they tell all their friends. And so um, that network just spreads. And then two, when there's something that we're excited or interested about, and we don't see a lot of founders applying, we do a request for startups. And, and really what the purpose of that is, is just to tell people who are thinking about those things, hey, like we're here for you. And, and they should be a little bit radical and a little bit crazy because like if they're on trend, they're too late. And so it's just like, hey, if you're weird because you care about blank, Maybe um, you should apply to us because, like, we like weird people. So, have applications opened yet for winter 2020? 
One, one, one fun thing that's probably not well known is applications never close. Ah. Yes. Well, you just, you just told everybody. Well, or a chunk of them at well, least. Now you know. So, <laughs> so let's quickly just run through some more um, of the stats on this batch. So as we said, what, 196, 197 companies. Yep. Um, 27.5% have at least one female founder. Yep. 11% um, of companies have a Latinx founder and 5% have a black founder. Yes. Is that up, down, flat? Where does um, that land in the uh, trendish area? Numbers are moving in all directions. So I think it's up on female, up on Latinx, and down on black. What is your, uh, this is kind of a weird way to ask this, what's your level sure. of comfort with those stats? Do you think that they're pretty good? Are they moving in the right direction? Are they not good? Uh, what's your general vibe? So I think there's two things that we care about. Like one is the pool of people getting into YC represent the applicant pool. And with that, we're, we're there. I think the second thing is, does it represent the population? And like, that's more important because it reflects who has access to the startup world. And we firmly believe that access to the startup world isn't fair and it's not equitable across the entire population. So from that perspective, we have a long way to go and a lot of work to do. And this is where startup school, which we were talking about before, comes into play to kind of spread, I mean... Help the pipeline. There you go. Yes. I think that a lot of what we realized was that we had so much content out there but like when you tell a founder in extreme early stage, like, oh, just Google it, it's not really a great experience. And so Startup School was basically a way to create a structured and scalable way to distribute a ton of advice. And I think the other thing I really like about it, which is subtle, is that tech isn't as popular as it was. There have been a lot of tech companies who perhaps haven't held the mantle of tech as high and as pure as they should have. And I think that there are a lot more people who are skeptical about tech. And I think that what Startup School does is kind of gives you exposure to YC and tech before you have to commit to let you feel out, is this, are these types of people I want to interact with? Yeah. Is this type of industry I want to be a part of? I think that it's just as important in terms of giving information as it is in saying, no, this is an open, welcoming community. And perhaps we need to separate what the startup community is from what the tech community is. Because, I mean, you know, no one would say that anything that we're doing on stage here has anything to do with HP or Dell or even Google and Facebook. Like, they're kind of different now. Um, hard to call them startups now. I mean, yeah, I mean, will there... Okay, a little question on that. Where do you draw the line on startups? Because I feel like this is... Oh, gosh, this is a debate that never ends. Oh, sorry, should, should we not do no, this? No, 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 it's okay. People ask me I that didn't mean question to a lot, too. I mean, it's funny because from my perspective, because I deal with really early stage startups, yeah. I would say, like... I don't know, probably like companies that are under 100 people. Um, you know, after that, so they're you, kind of, they're, they're, they're doing something base. else. Yeah. Once you have your own like, in-house IT person whose <laughs> you know, job is like, to fix the conference rooms, you're probably more like a, a mid-level maturity tech company or something. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that the tech bar goes down way earlier. Maybe another way of saying it is that like, once you're financially self-sufficient, um, would, be, would be another way of thinking about it. Because the, uh, the implication of startup is like, Near death. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and, and by that you fighting mean fighting death. Yes, fighting death. Almost out of cash, and you're trying to stay alive. Yeah. I think um, good note to end on, and one more thing I want to talk about, um, kind of relates, is you talked a lot this morning about um, tech for good, like yes. emphasizing tech for good, which is great. And you had the Airbnb founders um, come visit. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was actually a great visit. Um, they typically come in and tell their story, but I think that um, their founding story and kind of their story with YC. Um, but I think this time, you know, where their focus internally is, is kind of how they want to set the direction for Airbnb. And they wanted to share their thoughts on what they wish they had been thinking about earlier. And um, I think what's tricky is that for an early stage startup that's pre-product market fit, 
there aren't, you know, 25 things they should do to make sure that they're a force for good. Um, and there isn't like a manual they should read or some like yeah, product no they should sign up for. Yeah. Um, but I think that what's really important and what they shared was they should figure out how to incorporate it into the conversation often. Because there's going to be so many little and big decisions they make over the course of the next two, three years where if someone's saying, is this good for the world? Um, they might make them slightly differently. They might change them a slight bit. And I think that um, a lot of founders after their talk reached out to me. And one, they just thanked us for bringing this up. And two, they kind of asked us questions about when in their startup they might encounter these issues. And like those are things I want to do office hours about. Um, and so I thought that was really fun. And you know, one of the things that Brian has said is that you know, tech has to take responsibility for making good in the world. Um, it's now a powerful enough industry where it's not just default progress. Um, and you know, anyone who's got caught in a you know, YouTube recommendation hole like, and will know, like, is that adding to your life or subtracting from your life? We have to have much more responsibility for making sure people's lives are better. And most people, when they come to YC, that's actually part of their primary goal. But people don't talk about it enough. It's not a common conversation amongst investors. Yeah, and I mean, people who come into YC, I imagine, are sort of like sponges, sucking it, taking it all in, you know, sucking in all the information. So if you're really emphasizing and advocating for that, could be really impactful down the line for these companies. Exactly. And, and it, it has to start somewhere. And I think that, um, you know, we grew up in a time where tech was just default good, and, and we're now seeing some things lash. that we're, yeah, that we're, that we're concerned about. Well, I think we should probably call it a day there. This has been tremendous fun and also a nice uh, deviation from the equity norm. Yes. Um, <laughs> PR people know we still don't do interviews. This was a one-time thing uh, with all the respect and love in the world. But, Michael, thank you very much thank for your you time. Thank you so much. Yes, and, it's uh, been great. And we'll see you tomorrow for day two. Perfect. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, And we will see you all right here next week. There's a Kate Clark who's a very famous taxidermist, and she outranks me on Google. Okay. Are you yep. fighting? Is it an active battle? Or it is. It is. A, and okay. her artwork is really scary. She puts human faces on taxidermy. Ooh. This is a hot war. This, this, is, this is the Kate Clark. <laughs> if you Google Kate Clark, that's what comes up.